0: Nature wants us to be fat. That is a belief held so strongly by Richard J. Johnson, M.D., that he wrote a book with that exact title. On top of being a professor in medicine at the University of Colorado, who is board certified in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and kidney disease, he has led 20 years of research on the cause of obesity and diabetes with a keen interest in the roles of sugar, fructose, and uric acid. His previous books are titled The Sugar Fix* and the fat switch with his newest being called nature wants us to be fat the surprising science behind why we gain weight and how we can prevent and reverse it rick thank you so much for the time how are you doing today fantastic how are you doing very well thank you so what was your goal with this book well the goal of this book
1: is really uh, to to bring to the public uh, the great science that has been developed, uh, that has come out on this topic of what's causing obesity and the insights that the new science has has, as it might lead to uh, different approaches to lose weight and to keep it off. It's all based on, um, uh, on science that really crosses from studies in mice and laboratory animals to people, but also studies uh, of animals in nature, uh, studies of, you know, uh, anthropology and evolution and biology. So it's really uh, kind of a multi-pronged attack at trying to figure out what's causing obesity. And I've been involved in this so long that I thought it would be a value uh, for people to know about, uh, you know, that, that for example, that obesity is actually uh, a really positive thing for animals in the wild because it can be uh really important for survival and how we developed um processes to to really help put on weight to uh because of this uh, history that we have of, of you know there being times when survival was critical and being able to store fat was like uh really necessary for for us to to make it and um and so that's what kind of led me to to writing the book
0: and we will uh certainly get to uh what led to the need to be able to store more fat for the sake of survival here in a second but i feel like asking why nature wants to be fat at times is such a simple maybe obvious but still a brilliant starting point because animals do gain fat for the sake of survival, for hibernation, and then also migration too, which does beg a question that you also answer, which is, why is being overweight to fat beneficial for humans in modern times? So why is it?
1: So it turns out that um, you know the critical thing in for all animals in nature is to be able to survive, and fat can provide calories uh, when you're when there's no food around. Scientists have spent years trying to figure out, you know, what, what's the biologic response to starvation? Yeah. What's the biologic response to dehydration? What's uh, the biological response to when a predator is chasing you? And we, we've learned all these things. This was like the, the basic biology 101, where you learn about all these different processes about what happens when things are really bad. But animals in the wild, they don't want to be in those bad situations. So what they want to do is, is they would prefer to be prepared so that when there is no food, they have fat stores so that they don't go through starvation. And uh, when they that they can find water, even if there's no water around, they can make water and so avoid dehydration. And so there are all these, uh, you know, it, it's clear that animals would like to it would be smart if there was a way to prepare for a biologic crisis, as opposed to wait for it to happen. And what you know, the great discovery was that uh, there is a biologic switch that animals use to protect them before the crisis occurs. And this is, you know, for me was kind of a the 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 golden moment to realize that this is really what. Uh, animals do and they and that it's an actual switch that they trigger normally animals will maintain their weight you know really cl- you know tight they'll, they'll if they eat too much one day they'll eat less the next if they burn too much energy one day they'll rest the next they, they try to maintain their fat at a certain level that's you know provides a little bit of buffer if there's no food around but you know it's not anything particularly large amount. It's not that they wanna be obese all the time, but when they know that there's gonna be a period where there's not gonna be food around, like uh, when winter's coming, it seems to trigger a biologic switch where suddenly the animals will wanna gain weight, they eat a lot more, they put on fat, and then when the winter hits, they're ready for it. They hibernate and they burn that fat or they they get enough fat so they know they can fly across the ocean without falling into the ocean in the middle, halfway across from exhaustion, and so they they actually have learned how to do this, and um, and the way they do it is they trigger it usually by by eating certain types of foods, and um, our work actually was kind of able to identify this switch, and to figure out what triggered it. And what was the incredible thing, Trey, was that we realized that things like metabolic syndrome, which a quarter of our population has, where you get visceral obesity and your blood pressure goes up and you get fat in your liver and you get fat in your blood and, and uh, you become insulin resistant. And all these things that we thought of was as a disease process. I was taught this was like a you know, pre-diabetes, it's, it is pre-diabetes. And we, we thought of it as something like, you know, it's bad. It's pathophysiologic. It's, it's, a, it's the beginning of a disease process. And it sort of is, but it's actually a desired process that these animals want. That is the switch to store that bad and everything. And then the animals will survive off the fat when there's no food around and, and, and they'll, the insulin resistance helps them by keep, keeping the glucose in the blood high because that makes sure that the brain gets enough glucose. And so this process um, is actually something of great value to animals when they're in trouble. And what we, what we learned is that this is triggered by certain foods and that uh, animals are taught to search for these foods. Right? They're foods that the animals like. And one of them is sugar. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> so we're eating a lot of sugar and we're activating the switch, but we're not hibernating. Uh, and we're not uh, going on long distance migrations. And so the problem is, is that we're only doing half of the equation. <laughs> you know, We're doing the have to store the fat, we're not doing the, the other half, which is to burn the fat. Low carb diets, intermittent, intermittent fasting is sort of an attempt to uh you know to try to get back to the natural process. But uh yeah, yeah, so that's that was really what the discovery was. And then the surprise was that there's an actual pathway that does it. And we and when we figured that out, it turned out that it was. A carbohydrate that actually triggers this it's not a fat or protein it's it's a specific carbohydrate called fructose
0: (laughs) so you have labeled the switch that you referenced a few times just now as the survival switch and the problem for humans in modern times as you just said, animals have the ability to turn that switch on when they're going into hibernation or migration or going into a survival state and switch it off throughout that process where they're having to utilize that stored fat for energy We in modern times just have ample access to the foods that turn that switch on and never really make the effort to turn the switch off either. But as far as when we initially acquired that switch, you say that there is an evolutionary basis to that and it involves a couple of different uh, magnificent events in human and world history. What exactly were those and uh, how did it create a survival switch for humans?
1: Yes, okay. So it turned out, you know, Uh, that
0: fructose
1: is the mechanism for activating the switch. And uh, when you eat fructose, which is a sugar, right? It's the sugar in fruit, but it's also uh, in honey and it's also in table sugar. And uh, you have to eat a fair amount of it to really activate the switch. You're not gonna do it by eating a single fruit, but if you're drinking tons of fruit juice, you could do it. And if you're eating sugar, you're definitely gonna do it. All right, so the fructose activates the switch and it does it through a specific biochemical pathway. And it's sort of really cool because um, you know our bodies are driven by energy and when we eat food, we're making energy. But there's two kinds of energy, really. There's the energy that we have available to use immediately. And then there's the energy we store. And the energy we store is, that's fat. Fat is actually stored energy. Starch in plants is a stor- stored energy. Um, we call it glycogen in humans, but it's very similar to starch. But most of the energy that we store is fat. And then there's the usable energy that is right there to use right away is called ATP. And normally an animal will keep its ATP levels high and they, you want to have a lot of energy to do everything you want to do. And the fat, uh, the stored energy, will provide energy, will break down to make ATP when you need it. And so in a normal animal running around, it keeps its ATP levels high. If they drop for any reason, the stored fat releases, gets uh, broken down to generate the ATP. And so we always keep the engine full. And uh, tank full, as we say. So, but uh, what fructose does is it drops that ATP, even though the, there's a lot of stored fat. So it blocks the ability of the fat to break down to replace the ATP, and it it takes that ATP down to like three quarters full. So so your tank isn't doesn't have all the energy. It still has a fair amount. But when it's reduced, it signals to the, to the animal that there's an energy problem. It's like, uh, you know, you're know you gonna run out of gas eventually. So it's better to start looking for a gas, gas station. And, and, and so what happens is uh, it triggers all these processes to try to eat more, but the energy, when you eat it, instead of being funneled to, to replace the ATP, it kind of gets funneled to the stored energy. So now the stored energy goes up and the ATP levels uh, stay low and eventually they come back up. But it, by the time that happens, you've eaten a lot more food than you need and you've stored it as fat. And so it's it's sort of a brilliant system. And only fructose really does it of all the nutrients, but other foods can be converted to fructose. So you just asked me the question, why or did, you know, humans, did they have something happen to them that made them particularly sensitive to fructose? And the answer is yes, we are very, very sensitive to fructose. Uh, and it's because of at least two things that happened in our past. You know, if you study uh, science, you know that we carry a lot of genes and these genes program different things. And uh, in mice, you can knock out a gene. And the way we often find about the function of something is to take a mouse and knock out its gene. And when we do that, we can figure out what that gene's doing. And uh, it's been known for a long time that humans actually have knocked out two genes. So we are, you know, we call them knockout mice, you know, when you do it to a mouse. (laughs) But humans actually have knocked out two genes. And it turns out that they knocked out those genes because they happened to, when you do that, you amplify the ability of fructose to activate this switch and to become more fat. And the first one occurred 60 million years ago. And it used to be that animals made, you know, a lot of animals make vitamin C, but humans lost the ability to make vitamin C about sixty million years ago, and it, that was a time it was an ancestor to humans. It wasn't really a human, but it was our ancestor. It, it occurred right around the time of the of the extinction of the dinosaurs, and there was a you know a terrible period of time of starvation. You know, the the world got hit by an asteroid, believe it or not, and it caused this thing we call an impact winter, where the ash and everything went up into the atmosphere and just kind of darkened everything and plants were dying and animals were dying and food was scarce. you would think why would you lose the ability to make vitamin C? but it turns out that vitamin C is an antioxidant and the way you store fat is you create oxidative stress to them to those little energy factories that make that make energy called ATP that make this ATP. And one of the ways that fructose makes us hungry is to drop that ATP level by creating oxidative stress to those mitochondria that make ATP. So that suppresses them from making that ATP. And that helps bring that ATP level down, which then activates this whole switch. So uh, fructose actually causes oxidative stress, which it uses to stimulate fat but vitamin C is an antioxidant. So it counters that. So if you lose vitamin C and you make less vitamin C or you don't make any vitamin C, then that oxidative stress will be stronger because it will be countered by an antioxidant. So when the the antioxidant levels go down, the oxidative stress is higher and you get more fat. So what we did is we took mice and we knocked out their vitamin C. So we made them like humans in terms of vitamin C. And then we put them on sugar uh, with or without vitamin, you know, different doses of vitamin C. They had to get a little bit or they would get the disease scurvy. So all the animals get a little bit of vitamin C, but some got a high dose and some got a low dose. And the ones that got the low dose got a lot fatter than the animals that got the high dose. And so we learned that when you lose vitamin C, uh, you you actually increase your risk for developing obesity. There's vitamin C in the in the in foods too, and so you, you, when you lose vitamin C, it isn't that your vitamin C levels go to zero because you can get vitamin C C from vitamin C from other uh, foods uh, and including fruit. But it's interesting, uh, you know, like the fruit wheat has a lot of vitamin C, so it helps counter the the effects of the fructose that's in the fruit. But as a fruit ripens, the vitamin C content goes down and the sugar content goes up, and that helps the animal who starts eating a lot of fruit to start gaining fat. But it, in humans, we like more tart fruit that's higher in vitamin C, uh, and so we're not eating that kind of really lush ripened uh, fruit that's like been, that, that fell out of the tree and is actually you know almost not rotting yet, but but very sweet. We tend not to eat those kinds of fruits.
0: Yeah, think of overly ripe bananas or blueberries. And uh, typically when you see those lists of the best for you foods and fruits, oftentimes it's it's, uh, those berries that aren't quite to that maximal point of ripeness just yet. And I think for reasons you just spelled out, it makes total sense. So interesting to learn that. Also interesting to learn that you ended up a fructose expert by accident with uh, an interest in uric acid really serving as that gateway, what effect does fructose have on uric acid in humans? And why is this important for our understanding of fat storage? Yeah,
1: exactly. So, so Trey, you know, I'm a very curious guy and um, I just love research. And even though I started in the field of kidney disease, I just keep tracking where the, you know, whenever I find something interesting, I I'm willing to go into that area and leave where my comfort zone uh, and then learn about the new area and then continue into it. So the way I discovered, you know, became interested in fructose began with some studies I was doing on uric acid. And I was really interested in what caused high blood pressure. And, uh, you know, the the high blood pressures thought to be involved the kidney, and, uh, and it's one of the classic thinkings is that it's due to an impairment in our ability to excrete salt. And um, there was, but there was this very strong relationship with uric acid and high blood pressure. And, and when uric acid levels are high in people, the risk for high blood pressure goes way up. And then when we raised uric acid in animals, they developed high blood pressure. And we go, oh my God, could uric acid be involved? And we found that uric acid caused changes to the kidney that uh, affected its ability to excrete salt, and we could actually tie the whole thing together. And as we were doing this, you know, it was kind of like a big discovery that uric acid might have a role in high blood pressure. We found that other things could cause high blood pressure too, uh, that and they were all working through the kidney, but uric acid was right at the top of the list as being very important. Well, at, in people, uric acid is um, when it's high we usually think of the disease gout which is this uh type of arthritis that a lot of people get when their uric acid levels go high and uric and gout is really associated with high blood pressure and obesity and metabolic syndrome and all these things <laughs> actually 80% of people with gout are obese or have metabolic syndrome and, and uh 75% have high blood pressure and um and the, the you know it's basically the I call it the poster child for metabolic syndrome. They, they, the two go together. And in fact, for a long time, uh, some scientists thought that a high uric acid should be part of the definition for metabolic syndrome. In fact, the first people who studied it. Hmm. So anyway, so I, I was studying uric acid and I was trying to, you know, why is this thing so important? How is it working? And how? why does it go, why is it high in people? And, uh, you know, the classic teaching is that it goes up with eating, uh, with like drinking alcohol and alcohol can raise uric acid, especially beer and certain meats can and gravies can. And, um, and you know, so there's a lot of people who talk about it, but that's, there's actually a, a big association with sugar. And it was actually even Sir William Osler, who was the father of medicine, modern medicine, wrote in the 1890s that if you had gout, you better watch the amount of sugar you eat and even fruit juices. And I mean, he he put that in like, you know, prominent, this is what you need to do. And, and people who have gout often will tell you that they, they have to avoid sugar because it can trigger uh, an attack of gout. Well, it turns out that sugar, we mentioned it contains fructose. And when you give fructose to animals, their uric acid levels go up, not just in the blood, but in the, inside the cell, the same is true as people. When you eat sugar, your fr- your uric acid goes up within 15 minutes. And so that it, it's actually a cause. Fructose is a cause of raising uric acid. And fructose is also, sugar intake is actually a big predictor of high blood pressure. And we were actually able to give sugar to animals. and We gave fructose to humans. And uh, when we gave a high doses, they developed pretty significant increases in blood pressure that we could block by lowering uric acid. So we realized that, you know, that uric acid was important in the blood pressure response. And then Taka Nakagawa, who's this uh, Japanese fellow scientist, doctor, who came to work with me, he said, let's give fructose to animals and, and lower the uric acid and prove that it's really reducing their blood pressure. This was early on. And when he did it, he came back to me and says, hey, Rick, you know, it did block the blood pressure, but it did some other things that like reduced the weight gain and reduced the fat uh, increase in fat. It reduced the fatty liver. It didn't like cure it. It just reduced it. But here, when the animals were still eating, we, we did studies where we had them eat the same amount of sugar and it still did it. It was working independently of calories. And what's more is the uric acid was not in the caloric pathway. It wasn't supposed to do, you know, lowering it. I could see it lowering blood pressure, but why would it have effects on obesity? So then at that point, I knew we had discovered something important, that sugar wasn't just causing obesity from calories, that there was an actual pathway. And that's what led us to this discovery that it was this drop in ATP, And uh, I told you that the drop in ATP is driven by oxidative stress, and that's why vitamin C actually helps block that. But it turns out that the oxidative stress is triggered by the uric acid. And when the uric acid is inside the cell, it triggers uh, an oxidative stress pathway that uh, affects the ability of the mitochondria to produce ATP. So the uric acid turned out to be really important. And then what was really interesting is humans have higher uric acids than most animals, and this was due to a mutation as well. Hmm. And this was a mutation that occurred like millions of years ago, and it occurred during a period of climate change and near starvation. And, and uh, it was in the, a period called the Miocene epoch, and it was like 15 million years ago. And I met, I I found out that there was a period of time where 30% of all animals became extinct and it was global cooling, not global warming then. And so I, I, again, I, you know, I was outside my area of expertise, but I decided to meet up with world experts on that area. And I met up with a gentleman named Dr. Peter Andrews, who works out of the Museum of Natural History in London. And he's like the world expert on this period of time. And, and he and I together worked on this with others. We actually resurrected the extinct gene. Uh, we ended up doing all kinds of studies and we basically proved that when we lost that, that, that we lost the gene that made our uric acid levels higher. And when we did that, it was to help us survive during a period of food scarcity. And so it, it turns out that we've had two mutations that uh, just barely kept us alive, but helped us survive really critical times in history when there wasn't much food around. And now we carry those mutations and there's like 80,000 foods, to different food items in the average grocery store to pick from. And it's, you know, we can eat sugar all year round. We can eat fruit all year round. We don't have to, we don't have that period where there's a food scarcity where we need to uh where we won't have food for a month. And so uh we're we're continuously activating the switch. We have a heightened response to it, and bingo. <laughs> that's that's really the formula for gaining weight.
0: Well, your research does such a great job of continuing to hammer your points home throughout this book, and as a matter of fact. Uh, There are obviously plenty of calorie in, calorie out ideologues out there. Those who believe that quantity matters so much more than quality when it comes to calories and weight gain. And to their credit, your research on rats that fed one group a lot of fructose and the other group no fructose over a short period of time found that the weight gain was negligible. But to the point that both things can be true and both can- things can matter, there were so many different other health markers in that research that showed that the uh, those rats were being set up for some serious health issues down the road, potentially even weight gain as a result of their, I say, diet choices. You guys are obviously making the choices for them, but because they were consuming so much more fructose than their counterparts.
1: Yeah. So let me, let me uh, clarify that just a little bit. So, yeah, so it turns out that the way fructose works, there's two ways. One is what it does independently of calories. And then what it, one is that it does stimulate food intake. So it does stimulate increased food intake. So if I give fructose to an animal, the first week it will just eat its normal amount of food. But after the second week, it will become hungrier and the switch is activated. And at that point, uh, the animal can't control its food intake, and it will eat more than it needs, and it will drop its energy metabolism. So it is eating more, and it gets fat because it's eating it's eating a lot more.
0: I guess to the point but, that I was trying to make though, Rick, uh, in, in a controlled setting where they literally didn't have a choice of eating more because you're right about that. When you consume more fructose, you do ultimately want to eat more and end up consuming right. for humans, like 500 extra calories per day. Yes. In clinical settings. But yes. when the, when the caloric amounts stayed similar, even though those animals were hungry, they were kind of SOL there. They weren't able to eat. You are hundred
1: percent. So- right. Right. Yes. So if you, if you don't allow them to eat, they're hungry, but now they're eating It's the same amount as the control animals. And so they don't gain very much weight. They, the weight gain is just very, very mild because the weight gain is really driven by that extra calories, but they become sicker and they get fat in their liver. They become diabetic. Their blood pressure goes up. So all of those things, parts of the switch, you know, insulin resistance, they are not dependent on you gaining weight. In fact, we did one study where we we calorically restricted animals, but we still made them diabetic. They ate a high sugar diet. So exactly right. You know, the one thing I will say about the energy balance people, you know, the people who say that it's all calories is that they do have one really interesting point is that is that weight gain is really facilitated by eating extra calories. And fat, for example, has uh, nine calories per gram. So you that when you eat French fries, you know, the, the fat is really, up and or anything fried, you're getting a lot of calories. Now, normally, if you just give fat to an animal, um, it, you know, in, in many situations, it will not gain weight because it controls, its, it so long as it regulates its weight, it'll just, uh, you know, it, it will control it. So if, if uh, it won't eat extra calories, even if it's fat. But if you first give them sugar uh, to make them lose their ability to control their weight, then when you get them fat, they really gain weight. And, and that's why, like, if you're on a low carb diet, you can eat a high fat diet. You know, people, low carb diets tend to be high in fat. And, um, and you don't gain weight because you control you You, your weight regulations controlled. You're not hungry. And, and in fact, one of the great things about a low carb diet is people tend not to um, be hungry. They tend not to eat more. Uh, they don't have to calorically restrict. It's just natural. Um, and so they can be given a high fat diet, but they're not really going to gain weight. But if you give them carbs so that they be, you activate the switch, then when you give them high fat, they really gain weight. One of our really interesting findings was that it isn't just the fructose you eat it's your body can make fructose from carbs and uh and that's how actually that's how carbs mainly cause obesity like um like potatoes and rice and 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 it's accelerated with salt salt really helps stimulate the conversion of of glucose which is in s- potatoes and starchy foods uh to fructose so it's Glucose can be converted to fructose in the body. It's driven by salt, um, and, but it can also occur if you're just eating a lot of um, high glycemic carbs like rice and potatoes and bread. So basically the way to think of it is that fructose can come from uh, sugar and high fructose corn syrup, major source. 15% of our diet is, are these sugars. So they're like the main, that's the hammer. Okay, boom. And then you can also make fructose from carbs and especially the, what we call the high glycemic carbs, like uh, rice, bread, potatoes, chips, uh, some cereals. And, And so these foods that break down easily and release where the glucose gets released and we call them high glycemic carbs. And, you know, if you eat them, your blood glucose will go up a bit. And when the blood glucose gets up a little bit, that's when the some of it gets converted to fructose. That's why French fries are so bad because they got the salt, which uh, they got the carbs. So they got the starch, the potato. So that's bad. And then the salt accelerates conversion. And then the fat, you know, just added, you know, expands the calories so you're you can eat it really fast and you're making all these uh you're making fructose and you're using the fat to gain weight and so french fries are are bad uh you know we we knew they were bad but they you know they don't contain fructose they just help you make fructose so that was the other big discovery was that the body can make fructose and we even have data trade that uh, alcohol can make fructose and I've been doing research on this and others have confirmed it, but when you drink alcohol, uh, the alcohol sort of acts like salt in the sense that it um, activates the conversion of glucose to fructose. The alcohol doesn't get converted to fructose, but like uh, if you're at a bar and you have a drink and you're eating pretzels, it will help convert those pretzels into fructose in your body. Uh, and and uh, it, what's really interesting is that if we block the effects of fructose in animals, then we give, when we give alcohol to animals, we can block the development of liver disease. And mm. so alcoholic liver disease is indirectly from this fructose, in, according to our research. And, and even more interesting, if we block fructose metabolism using special ways in the animals, we can block alcoholism. And so uh, so I actually have research funding from uh, the National Institute of Health uh, to, to try to develop inhibitors of fructose metabolism as a new way to help people with alcoholism. Wow. And it's, it's sort of a, a pretty cool area. It's been known for a long time that people who like alcohol often like sugar and vice versa. And if you ever... Like me, I'm a physician and if I'm in the hospital and if I'm seeing patients who are in there with uh, alcohol withdrawal or problems with alcohol, um, it's very, very common to go into the room and find soft drinks on their uh, nightstand because um, uh, it's just the natural desire to, to crave sugar if you don't have alcohol.
0: Well, you cited the physician and sugar expert, Robert Lustig, who said, sugar is like alcohol without the buzz. Great quote there. And I wanted to get back to salt for just a second, because that was uh, one of the more surprising things that I read in this book. Obviously, a certain amount of salt is good for us. So where is that line where salt goes from good to bad? I mean, I know that you mentioned pairing it with certain things just accentuates its ability to turn on that survival switch, but is there... Uh, typically an amount for men and women where it does go from a positive to a negative?
1: Yeah, so it's really a good point. I mean, everyone does need salt, right? And, um, you know, we are losing salt uh, when we sweat. We're losing, we lose salt in our urine. Um, and so it's a balance. We want to be eating enough salt, salt to keep the salt balance in our bodies at a normal level. And, and the, way, uh, the way life works is uh, our cells live in an environment of fluid. The Blood uh, is carrying fluids uh, to, our, to our body. And um, in, even in the cells, between our cells, there's fluid. Inside our cells, there's fluid. 70% of our weight is water. And that it's not just water. Water. It's a solution of water and salt. And over the millions of years, our bodies have learned how to, f- the, the, the function of our cells requires a certain concentration of salt. And so we when you go to see the doctor, uh, we'll measure your salt concentration. We call it serum sodium, serum potassium. But sodium is actually the uh, main s- salt that's in our blood. It's the main salt, uh, you know, and it's uh, we we measure its concentration. The concentration normally is like one thirty five to 140, 145 milliequivalents per liter. So we have this amount of salt. Now, if we get dehydrated and we lose water because uh, we're we're vomiting or we have diarrhea or or we're out sweating, um, what happens is the salt concentration becomes higher because we're losing water. And if we uh, drink a lot of water, we can dilute that salt concentration down. And likewise, if we lose salt, you know, we can have the opposite effect. You know, if we lose too much salt, the sodium concentration will go down. So uh, our bodies really want to have the salt concentration at a, you know, at a very clear a, a specific level so when the salt concentration goes up we become thirsty and we start drinking water and uh and so this is you know what is normal so it turns out that animals are always trying to maintain a normal salt concentration and uh but if if the if they get in a setting where they get slightly dehydrated they get thirsty and what's interesting is uh, this: when that means is the salt concentration goes up, and when the salt concentration goes up, it triggers the conversion of glucose to fructose. And, and the question: why would that be? But it turns out that when fructose activates the switch, it makes you not just hungry, but it makes you thirsty. So you're you're searching for water as you know you're thirsty. I don't know if you know it, when you drink a soft drink you will be, it's usually you feel more thirsty than less thirsty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's the same reason. Anyway, so what happens is you also start making fat. And it turns out that fat um, can be a source of water, not just calories. I mean, this I it's sort of kind of amazing, but when you burn, you know, fat doesn't contain water, but when you burn fat, you produce water. Uh, you make uh, CO2 and you make water. So animals can use fat to help them provide water when there's no water around. So when that bird is migrating over the ocean and it's living off its fat, it's actually using the water it makes to help it as well. Whales, they, they don't actually drink seawater. They, uh, they get their water mainly from the food they eat, but about a third of the water they get is from their fat. Animals in the desert use the fat. Like some of them will have it in their tails or humps uh, on their back, and they'll use that fat as a source of water when they need it. So when you get <clears throat> when you get really dehydrated, you convert that fat into uh, water. If you're just very very mildly dehydrated, not so not so bad that you're really dehydrated, but your serum sodium starts going up, you'll actually start making fat in preparation for well, guess what way you can make yourself mildly dehydrated? The easiest way is eat some salt because uh, it'll raise the salt concentration a little bit. It's not so dangerous that you are at risk of getting severely dehydrated, but it triggers thirst uh, and it triggers the switch and it's like prep- preparing you. So what's the right amount of salt? Which was your key question. So the, the, the National uh, Academy of Medicine recommends about four to five grams of salt a day. Um, mm. And I think that's probably a good number. But what our data shows is that it isn't just the salt, it's the combination of salt and water. And everyone should be drinking water. And we're not drinking enough water. There's studies in people with obesity showing that they drink way too little. The, uh, people who are overweight tend to eat high salt foods and to drink less water and to show these subtle signs of deep, dehydration and we think that that is actually a major trigger for why people who are overweight gain fat uh, and have trouble losing weight. And when we took animals and we just gave them sugar but we gave supplemented them with water, we could uh, reduce the, the, the degree of obesity. And so uh, it's the, it's a balance of salt and water. If you're eating a lot of salt, drink even more water and as soon as you're thirsty, you probably are activating the switch. So you, you know, but having said that, there are certain, um, situations where, you know, I don't think anyone will get into trouble if you just drink eight glasses a day. If you drink eight glasses of water a day, eight cups, uh, of water, uh, eight, eight ounce cups or six, 12 ounce glasses, that's a wonderful place to start. Now, if you have heart failure or you're having surgery, uh, or your marathon runner you know they say to only drink to thirst you know so if you get thirsty just drink until the thirst goes away but i would uh, i would say that in general most of us should be drinking eight glasses a day and we shouldn't be eating a lot of salt if you eat like 10 12 15 grams of salt then you then you're, you're defeating the purpose you, you're going to bring the salt concentration up you're going to activate the switch there's a uh, new studies coming out Trey uh, sh- where people have looked at this quote, normal so- sodium range. So when you get a blood test done by your doctor you can see your serum sodium, it's called NA, that's sodium, and uh, and it'll show the normal range. But actually there's now data coming out to say that if you're in the upper end of normal that you're you actually have a higher risk for obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, Uh, you know, dementia, you know, every, you know, all and mortality. So even within what we call the normal range, if you're in the upper end, uh, it's probably not good. You probably want to be in the middle. The the ideal serum sodium is probably 138 to 141, 138 to 142 maybe. And if you're like at 144 and we say it's normal, it's still carrying risk for you. Uh, And so we should all be drinking more water
0: that's it for part one of my chat with richard j johnson md on his new book nature wants us to be fat the surprising science behind why we gain weight and how we can prevent and reverse it stay tuned next time it'll be part two of two right here on books on pod